We're in a season of Christmas. I'd like to initiate a series that we're going to entitle A Strange Way to Save the World. Does anybody know this song? Has anybody heard this? Oh, that's beautiful, because I can bring back something from the 90s, and it can be fresh and new for every single one of you, because this is a song that I grew up listening and thinking about and pondering. And what I'd like to share with you as we initiate uh, this series, and we're going to have multiple teachers, as Spark does, share in this season of of various aspects of what the heck is it that we tell every time we come to this season, to this Christmas time. What is the story that we tell? And today, I'm going to just introduce it by saying I have zero answers. And we're going to leave you with a conundrum and a dilemma, and maybe perhaps a question mark that you're just going to honestly have to go home and wrestle with. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I, for those of you who have been um, in America, I was going to say in the church, but in America, you know, like every December, uh, sorry, every October 31st and November 1st, Christmas music comes on the air. Actually, sometimes in August, you know, there was a Christmas tree in August in Costco the other day, um, but some, some year. And the season comes around, and we tell this story, and there are some familiar elements. But if you were to stop and to think about each of these elements, I think you might agree there's something kind of odd. For example, the very first thing that we see in this story, somewhere around the year 6 BC, depending upon your chronology and how you want to account for the history, there's a betrothed lower class couple, and they are engaged to be married uh, back in the Middle East. They are discovered to be pregnant. Well, they, no, it's not a they, it's he. No, it's not a he, it's a she. She is discovered to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I don't know what test you take to find that out. How does that happen? How do you discover that you are, discover that you're, like, what, how did that happen? Did you have to wait? I mean, was it, was it just a monthly thing? I don't know. Like, what was it that you discovered? And you discovered that it wasn't through the normal natural means by which you get pregnant. It was pregnancy by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Chalk that one up to the history books. Um, after this, what should be normally wondrous news about the coming of a new life, there is a quiet divorce Joseph decides that in order to save face and to save the respect and the dignity of Mary within the context of the community, there's going to be this quiet divorce and send her away quietly. And then after that, because prior to that, everything, you're just trying to make sense of everything. There's angelic appearances that say, hey, Joseph, let me explain to you what's going on here, okay? The, the thing that's happening to your wife, don't worry, God's got it. And Joseph's like, no, uh, this... Sorry, even an angelic theophany, some sort of appearance of the divine, is not necessarily going to make all that much sense to me. Nonetheless, the angels appear and describe that, hey, this thing that's happening to you that you're freaking out about, that you took the test about, yeah, we've, we've actually been talking about this for many, many hundreds of years. There's a prophecy way back when, and it's coming to pass. Doesn't that make you feel better, Joseph? You're the one. Congratulations, you won the lottery ticket. After... One or two more sentences, they actually do end up getting married, but it's not a real marriage. Remember back in this day, it's not a real marriage unless you actually consummate the marriage. So it's very, very clear and specific that they are married, but they are not married yet. And so that doesn't fall in line and in order. And in other passages that we have in our New Testament, it's very clear 
that the best man of the wedding is supposed to stand at the door of the honeymoon suite and listen for the marriage to be consummated, which is exactly how you had it done, isn't it? So we know that in this particular time, in this era, in this culture, that is an important aspect of what does it mean for the joining of two people. This is a very earthy, very visceral very fleshy kind of experience. And so a marriage without that doesn't also make sense either. The story gets even weirder because who are these magi? Some people think that they might be Babylonian astrologists. Some people believe that they're Jews that were exiled off to the east that have somehow divined the scriptures and then also picked up Babylonian astrology, looked at the stars and said, hey, let's, let's follow that one. And they decide to follow a star. They say, that's the star that we're going to follow. And when was the last time you navigated by following a star? In another account, there's these shepherds, another angelic uh, visitation that happens. And very weird and odd and disturbing is a frightened and furious king that decides that this baby that is being born, that he's just heard about, by the way, this is just rumor, that these magi come through the city, say, hey, we're looking for the king. And, and Herod's like, excuse me? Excuse me? You're looking for the king? Excuse me? Uh, you're looking at the king decides that a birth of a child is actually a threat to his throne. And so rather than taking care of this in a very simple manner, he decides to just slaughter a bunch of children to protect his own power. Not a children's story, by the way. None of this is a children's story. These magi come and they give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This gold is fit for the king, wealth, power, Majesty. Frankincense, fit for the gods, the divine. And myrrh, oddly enough, fit for burial, for death, for the anointing of the body after it passes. Very odd gifts indeed. Uh, the couple flees to a foreign country, become refugees in a foreign land in order to escape the murderous threat of Herod. And because of that, the entire world is saved. Congratulations. Now, if we went through all of those things and really considered them, when was the last time, or what would, what would you think about, or what would you consider, had this been you or your child, discovered that they were pregnant by the Holy Spirit? All of a sudden, Gavin Newsom decided to murder every single child in California because of this birth. And then some people from Canada decided to bring gifts of maple leaves or I don't know, whatever they would bring from Canada. Syrup. <laughs> Fit for the gods, kings. Yes, exactly. I'm going to propose to you, my friends, um, for those of us who have been in this culture, who have been around faith, we've been telling this story for years. It's part of who we are. We know these elements. We sometimes recite them by rote as well because we are supposed to. That's what storytelling is supposed to be. You're supposed to tell the same story again. We're supposed to be reminded of, of these elements, of these events that have brought us to this particular place. But honestly, for me, at this particular moment, maybe this is just me and my journey. This is a weird story. 
And this is a very strange thing. And when you consider the theological layer, which is that the entire world is to be saved as a result of all of these events that have led up to this moment in this celebration, this truly is a strange way to save the world. If you believe in a God who is all-powerful, divine creator, ever-present, capable of doing anything, what in the world would that kind of God be doing by telling a story or living out a story such as this to bring about salvation in the world? This is a strange, strange, strange way to save the world. And it's not only just a strange way uh, in thoughtfulness regarding thinking about the story. This is, in the theological sense, this is a strange way. Like, if if you didn't grow up under this story, if if somebody were to tell you, oh, yeah, this is how God's going to do it, I would bet that people in a foreign, um, a a different culture, a different time, different place would probably cock their heads at you and go, really? That's your story? That's really how it's done? What's really, what, what is this really all about? Now, I don't posit that to you to disturb you only. (laughs) I don't posit that to you to suggest to you that you sit in the strangeness, but what I'd like for you to, to do today, just for a brief moment and maybe throughout the season, is to allow a little discomfort in and to ask some questions. Honestly, why this way? Why a virgin birth? Why a poor couple? Why a cave? Why the animals? Why the magi? Why the gifts? What does all of this actually have to do with the salvation and redemption story that God has been telling ever since the beginning? And what I'd like to do, because as I mentioned, I'm not going to answer anything for you. I'd like to just provoke and propose that you consider sitting in some tensions and try to tease out for your own life and your own interpretation what these kinds of things might mean. I'd like to just go through the virgin birth element And other pastors and teachers will go through different other pieces of the story. And I'd like for you to just see some possibilities. And hopefully somewhere in there, you might be able to say, that is, I haven't seen, I haven't considered that before. Maybe that's a part or a thread or a fundamental note in the story and the song that I hadn't seen before. And maybe that might enlighten you into how you might see the Christmas story. So first, let me just ask, why the virgin? Theologians and commentators have suggested that the virgin birth is necessary to declare the divinity of Jesus and the origins of Jesus from the Holy Spirit. Now, that's clearly stated in the text, so that's not terribly surprising. Of course, Jesus is of, a, of divine origins. That's why the virgin birth is necessary. That is, um, that is layered with all sorts of complexities regarding how ancients as well as modern people view sexuality in regards to what is divine and what is pure. That's a whole other level in conversation I think is really fascinating to have. But um, nonetheless, that's one of the main issues that is brought up. The second one that people talk about is to fulfill the prophecies. The third one is to declare that Jesus was sinless. That's why a virgin birth is necessary. Once again, layered on that, the whole sexual ethic and and how people have seen sex and sexuality. Again, sorry, this is not a children's message. none None of these stories in the Bible are children's stories. But Matthew actually tells us why. And I don't know if you've ever considered this before. Matthew is very, very clear. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, 
the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So if you're asking the question, why? Why the virgin birth? Why is this necessary? What is this strange thing that's happening? Matthew's actually going to give you a clue. Now, this passage, the virgin shall be uh, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, comes from Isaiah chapter 7. And we quote that. It's in our songs. It's in our Christmas songs. It's in our hymns. So we quote this very frequently during the Christmas season. But have you ever stopped to read Isaiah chapter 1, and Isaiah chapter 2, and Isaiah chapter 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and then chapter 8 and 9? What I'd like to do is just give you a very brief glimpse, because there's a lot in here, but it helps to contextualize a little bit of what's going on in the story. This is a bule. A bule is a seal of a king or a prophet or somebody of important administrative stature. And if you don't know what a bule or a seal is, every time you got takeout, especially during COVID time, you know what a seal is. A bule is the stamp that you put around a letter or a gift that authenticates its purity or its source. And so this particular image has the name. It's, a, it's actually incredible. Isaiah the prophet, found on the southern slopes of Jerusalem by Elat Mazar, digging there recently. It's a really incredible find. So we'll use this as our icon for Isaiah the prophet. Now, very briefly, we're just going to do this very briefly. Isaiah chapter 1 starts off, the entire prophetic voice does not start off with some sort of declaration of God's salvation that is coming. Although that's what Isaiah's name means. It starts off with this, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I have nurtured and raised, but they rebelled against me. It starts off with disobedience. It starts off with a nation who had been created by God in God's image and likeness, freed and liberated out of Egypt by God, carried through the desert as a child, as a father carries his son through that wilderness. And what does that child grow up to do? Middle finger to God. And I'm out. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't. They rebelled against me. Just imagine that being a possibility for some of you parents. I know it's a possibility. I know it never happens, but it's a possibility. Wash, become pure, remove your evil acts from my eyes. Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Make the oppressed happy. Defend the orphan. Argue the widow's case. What is it that you have rebelled against? The justice that I've asked you to do and be in this world. What do you think that liberation from Exodus was all about? What do you think you being created in my image was all about? It's to do good. It's not to just simply celebrate the fact and be haughty about the fact that I'm created in the image of God and all these foreign people are, you know. There is a purpose and a movement. Do good. Seek justice. And what specifically does that mean? Make the oppressed happy. That word happy doesn't have a very great connotation. In the ancient Hebrew, it just simply means satisfied, fulfilled. The thing that you lack has actually been provided for. Defend the orphan. Argue the widow's case. This is what Isaiah is saying. You have rebelled against God and you've neglected these really critically important things. Do that. So... The Isaiah prophecy that's going to lead up to the virgin shall conceive and have a child starts off with rebellion from children. So there's an entire theme that's going to be developing here. 
Chapter 2 starts off with this phrase, and it shall happen in future days that the mount of the Lord's house shall be firm founded at the top of the mountains and lifted over the hills. Nation shall not raise sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's light. This is the, this is the passage from where we get the phrase, and when God intervenes, all of your weapons of war will be transformed into tools for regeneration and life. Turning your swords into plowshares. So even though there's this rebellion, there's like this pendulum swing back to God's coming in and it's going to fix it all. Chapter 3, for look, the master, Lord of armies, is about to take away from Jerusalem and from Judah staff and stay, every staff of great and every staff of water, warrior and fighting man, judge and prophet and wizard and elder, commander of fifties and notable and counselors and craftsmen and casters of spell, really important people, by the way. And I shall make their lads, their commanders, and babes shall rule them, and the people shall oversee each other. One man and his fellow, the lad, shall lord it over the elder, and the worthless over the honored. In other words, the standard way in which hierarchies work, which people in power are able to dictate to all people how things are supposed to be, that entire agenda is flipped upside down, and the lads and the children will then command the lords and the priests. The way in which we have constructed our lives, the way in which we have developed governance, the way in which we have supposed things are supposed to be right. I have power, I have money, I have prestige, I came from the the right line, I'm clearly the one that's going to be in charge and make life what life is going to be for all the rest of y'all. In this particular passage, it's flipped. And there's some sort of radical development of a democratic ideal that Even the children, the lads, the orphans, the widows, the young people, they have an equal voice. There's a justice to be done here in this passage, too. Isaiah chapter 4. On that day, the Lord's shoot shall become beauty and glory and the fruit of the land, pride and splendor for the remnant of Israel. The master shall surely wash the filth of the daughters of Zion. Can I tell you how visceral this language is? The master shall surely wash. Wash the filth of the daughters of Zion. And Jerusalem's blood guilt he shall cleanse from its mist with a wind of justice and a wind of rooting out. Many of you know that that word wind also means spirit. And so even though, quite literally, Israel has soiled herself, the spirit and the wind of God is coming through to clean, to refresh, to renew, to redeem. Because this is what God finds. He goes into the house of the Lord. He goes into the house of Israel, the vineyard of the Lord of armies, men of Judah, his delight in planting. And he looked. God looked for justice. He looked for things to be right. He looked for things to be the way they're supposed to be. And what did he find? Not justice, but jaundice. This is Robert Alter's translation. It's a great play on words. Justice, jaundice. They sound very close, but they are two radically different realities. And to our ears, like to to people who are in power, the way that things are, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. People who lord it over others, this is the way it's supposed, this is right. I have what I have because I I'm clearly deserving of this, and they don't have what they have because they're clearly deserving of what they don't. This sounds about right. Justice is actually jaundice. 
What you think is right is actually not right. I looked for righteousness, but I looked for wickedness. This is the image in Isaiah chapter 5. I went to the vineyard. It's supposed to be plump and ripe and rich and beautiful, and this is what I have instead. That's Israel. That's you. That's the people of God. The ones that I pulled through the Red Sea, the ones that I walked through the desert, the ones who I, to whom I cared about deeply to give you commandments and laws. This is what you've done. There's an ideal that's constantly being appealed to in the prophetic voice. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those where there's an appeal to the heavens. Where? Up there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The fullness of all the earth and all his glory. Where we get the image of the seraphim declaring the goodness and the glory of God. And that that goodness and glory is going to fill the earth. These opening chapters of Isaiah that precede the coming of the child being born is a constant roller coaster ride of God's sovereignty and holiness in comparison with humanity's moral depravity. When you read these prophetic texts carefully, you will find in them the tension and the fight and the struggle for an ideal of what God has designed for us. And we've talked about that multiple times at Spark, for what justice is supposed to be, what we have called gospel justice. I know some people don't like the term social justice, but when good news hits the streets, it transforms the way in which people act and live and behave and treat one another, not only interpersonally, but systematically. And so there is this constant fight and wrestling between what God has designed and wanted and desired for that justice and our ability to completely spurn it. Our ability to say, no, we don't want it and we don't care. Now, the underlying fundamental question throughout these entire texts is simply this. How? How in the world is salvation actually going to come? And this is where I'm not going to leave you with any answers because honestly, I don't feel like I have any. How? Who's going to bring salvation? We can't seem to win this battle. Throughout the prophetic tradition, God is clearly victorious coming through. And yet, you all, we all somehow are able to screw it up. We're, we're, We're able to just completely mess it all up. So how in the world is this supposed to happen? And this is where the Isaiah 7 passage begins to be the culmination, the denouement, for those of you who are into the drama, the culmination of this story. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1, reads, And it happened in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that seen king of Aram with Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to do battle against it. All of those names are important and critical people, in the history of Israel, you can actually go up and go and look up this actual battle that happened. Basically, what is happening is that there are enemies of Israel that are rising up against Jerusalem. And the culmination, the, the metaphor, the symbol of the complete rejection and rebellion against God is now taking place as a rebellion against one another. When you rebel against the Lord of hosts, when you rebel against God, when you, when you spurn God's goodness and love, it manifests itself in conflict with one another. And so that's going to be the setting of this. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign from the people of the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, or high above. And Ahaz says, I will not ask 
and I will not test the Lord. And Isaiah said, listen to me, O house of David. Is it not enough for you to weary men that you should weary my God as well? Just ask for a sign. Come on. And Isaiah says, and here it is, the sign of your salvation, the sign that God is at work, the sign, the evidence that good things are happening is this. The young woman is about to conceive and bear a son. She shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat till he knows how to reject evil and choose good. For before the lad knows how to reject evil and choose good, the, the land whose two kings you despise, they shall be abandoned so you can reclaim them essentially. The good news is that a child is on its way to which every single one of you should be going, what? Why? This doesn't make any sense to me, honestly. There's a battle that's being ensued. There are people knocking at my gate and my door ready to kill me now. And the sign of God's salvation, the sign of God's work is a woman who is not yet pregnant. She will get pregnant. We'll have to gestate for nine months, give birth. That child will have to grow up and learn what is good and what is right to eat. That's like three years, four years. And then we'll ultimately grow seven years, eight years. There's somebody at my door right now battling down the gate making war against me now, and you're telling me the sign of God's goodness and salvation is a nine-year program of a child growing up? Honestly, this doesn't make any sense to me. This is a strange, a strange sign. You, you know, honestly, the best sign, the best sign is that thunder and lightning came down and destroyed the armies and the enemies of Jerusalem. That's the Isn't that the sign you want? Don't you pray for that sign? That's the sign. Like that person who cut you out. God, just give me a sign right now that you love me more than them. And the lightning strikes them and blows them off the road, right? Yeah. That's the what we're looking for. And yet, and yet in this passage, in these texts, the sign is a very slow-moving, natural process of life. This doesn't make any sense. Isaiah takes this sign and goes into the prophet's wife. This part is censored so that that prophecy can come to fulfillment. They write it down on a scroll. And then two chapters later, there's a declaration. Again, w w there's a battle that's ensuing. Two chapters later, another passage that we say during the Christmas season. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the land of death's shadow, light has beamed on them. Light is coming. Salvation is here. I don't have to worry about those people at the gate. I don't have to worry about the army. I don't have to worry about the war that is ensuing. Yes. What's that sign? For unto us a child is born. <laughs> Excuse me? A bit. What's the baby going to do right now? What? Honestly, I'm going to have to take care of that baby. I'm going to lose sleep over that. I'm going to have, oh, you're telling me that's the sign? The sign has been given to us. Leadership is on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wondrous Counselor, Divine Warrior, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, making leadership abound in peace without end on the throne of David over his kingdom to make it firm-footed and stay it up in justice and righteousness forevermore. That child is going to grow up and, and cause it to happen. That's great. Sometime, again, you're going, What? What in the world is a child going to do for me right now for the salvation that I need right here? This doesn't make any sense. This is a very strange word, world. Strange way, strange way in which salvation is going to come. 
The technical theological term for salvation is called soteriology. Everybody say soteriology. <laughs> and what I've, I think I've coined this, I don't know, it just came to me one day. I call this soteriological latency. <laughs> that the, the salvation that I think each and every one of us want, the redemption that we're all looking for, the hope that we reach for, and especially in a modern, fast-paced, advancing, instant, Amazon Prime, Instacart kind of world, is I need that salvation to come right here, right now. Preferably in five minutes, and I'll pay the extra delivery charge. And something about this story doesn't make any sense, because in both the Isaiah story and the Matthew story, the salvation that is coming to the people is in the form of a child that's got to be weaned and has to grow up and has to poop its diaper and has to learn what's good and right. What in the world does a child have to do with this whole salvation story? This is a strange way to save the world. So I call this soteriological latency. And again, I don't have any answers to this, and I actually would very much appreciate other people's thoughts and reflections. My only thought in this is it appears, and this is the strangeness of it all, that when there is evil and injustice and when there are things in this world that we want to fix and when we see that the world is not right and we see specifically images and forces and people and, and actual sources of that evil and that injustice, what do we want to do? We want to meet might with might. And we want to say, okay, you're, you're going to play that game? I'll play this game. Now, you might be right on the right side of justice. You might be right on the right side of what is good and ethical and moral. But the fundamental way in which we want to play that game is I'm going to meet might with might. And something about this story just struck me. And I don't, again, I don't know where, what, what this means and what this implies because it's a big question mark in my mind. But somehow in both of these stories, in the Isaiah story and the Matthew story, the might is met with life not with might. There's this saying from Rene Girard, who's a sociologist from Stanford, that ha has haunted me for ever since I heard it. Be careful who you make your enemy, for you will become just like them. Be careful who you make your enemy, for you will become just like them. And something about these stories and the season that we're in, about light coming into the world to make the world a better place, to transform darkness into light, appears to me to come in the form that does, doesn't make any sense at all. Which is to say, a child, a vulnerable, innocent, powerless, highly needy and dependent and whiny child, is the avenue of salvation. And in both instances, the emphasis of the meaning of that child is not that you are going to win the fight, but that God is going to be with you, Emmanuel. And that, the withness, seems to be where the focus of the salvation comes. In some wild, mysterious, wondrous, miraculous way, the birth of a child symbolizes the withness, Emmanuel, of God. And it is that withness that is our salvation. And that, my friends, is a very strange way to save the world. To declare that God is with you 
in this? Yes, to declare that God is with you. And ultimately, pull that string through the rest of the story, that God is with you in your ultimate moments of pain and suffering and isolation, just like Jesus was in his ultimate moments of pain and isolation and suffering. It is this withness, Emmanuel, God with us, that seems to be the driving thread and the crux of this story. So in Isaiah, somewhere in the 8th century, there was an impending war, an impending battle, people coming up against my gates wanting to destroy me, and the salvation is going to come in the conception of a child who will raise, be raised up and who will learn good and evil and right from wrong. And in Matthew, the story of Jesus pulls on that same theme and that same thread with another king and another ruler and another oppression, both Rome and Herod. And that war is imminent. That threat is true and real. Yes, Herod really did slaughter hundreds of babies in the city of Bethlehem in the year 6 BC. And that threat is here. And the salvation is going to come again, not with the destruction of Herod, but with the birth of a child and somehow a declaration of God's witness. And again, what does that mean? How do you pull? You have to answer, I think, for yourself the question, what is it that you pull from here? What, what element of that witness meets us here in the 21st century? And for those of us who are desperately praying for another salvation and another redemption, for those of us who are desperately begging and asking God to breach into this universe and to save us from our sins, to save us from our injustices, to save us from the brokenness of, the, of this world, you have to ask yourself the question, maybe, maybe we see God's witness and God's salvation in all of these little children that are running around and the birth of a child, and the celebration of new life that comes in our community. And I don't know, and I'm, I'm almost certain that doesn't answer all the questions we have, but that seems to be one of the threads of this story and how we engage, not just with the celebration that Jesus has come, but in the weirdness and the strangeness, I suppose, of this story. I'm going to invite the team up, and we're going to move into a, a communion and we're going to actually lead you through a song, this song that has, for me, inspired uh, this kind of thinking. And the song um, ends or provides for us at least that context, the same kind of context. It doesn't answer the story for us, but it does just leave us with the question. Um, and as we play and sing together, we're going to invite you to join us. And as... You do. I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. The communion elements are once again a symbol of the fact that God is here and with you. The world is getting darker. We often see that or believe that and can sense that. Just pick up the news. <laughs> call your friends and discuss the darkness. But in this moment and in this time, in some very strange way, salvation is here and God is with us.
For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing, my friends, you are all welcome to this table.